love for you to turn to the book of First Peter, and uh, that little video there is a little bit of an introduction into a key verse that we will be looking at in our series as we start the book of First Peter. And we're gonna—I'm uh, titling the series "Drifters: uh, Resilience in Suffering," and uh, it is. A book, and I'm gonna tell you why this morning. But all I want to do this morning—I better. Stay here because I don't actually have the lapel mic. Uh, what I want to do this morning is I just want to kind of introduce you to the who, what, when, why of Peter and kind of give you the background of Peter so that as we go through the book of Peter that you can understand what's going on and you can get a good idea of what's happening. So all I'm doing today really is I'm only going to set up First Peter. So I'm just gonna, it's kind of an introductory message to the book. It's it's to give you the it's to give you the basics and understanding. All I want to do is set up the story and kind of uh, answer the question: Why did uh, why did Peter write First Peter, and how does it apply to our lives today? So in order to do that, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the very first verse and the very last verse of the book that are actually going to teach us this. So if you have your Bibles, we're just going to look at verse 1 and verse uh, and, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll look at chapter 5, verse 12. This is kind of going to be your text today. And all I'm going to do is I'm just going to set up the background. I'm going to give you a little bit of context and a little bit of history so you can understand this book. So please read it with me. This is scripture uh, starting in one of the count of three. One, two, three. Peter... An apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All right, this is the reading of God's word. And so what we've just read is the introduction to a letter. And so what we've read here is that there is a man named Peter, and Peter is an apostle of Jesus. Now, you know, I might not be sure what an apostle is. An apostle is someone who was personally trained and an eyewitness of the events of Jesus in, uh, in his life. And so Peter, Peter was one of those close personal people. Jesus had a number of disciples. He had 72 people that followed him, 12 that were really close to him, and three that were super, super close to him. And uh, Peter was one of those. And Peter was mentored by Jesus personally. And if there's something I could say about Peter, just so you would understand who this guy is that's writing this letter, this author, Peter is what I call it a, a nailed it and failed it Christian. Meaning this, is that there are times in Peter's life where you and I look at his life and say, I want to be that kind of Christian. He has enough faith to trust in Jesus that walks on water. When Jesus asks his disciples who he, who, he, who, uh, who he is, Peter is the one that says, Hey, I'm going, you are Jesus, you are the Son of God. Peter got it right. When Peter gets it right, he goes to Peter and says, You are the rock, I'm going to build the church on the rock. Okay. So there's a lot of things about Peter that we go, man, I want to have that kind of faith. He's the extreme version of the person that's like, I want to have a relationship with Jesus like that. 
But on the other side of it, he's actually kind of a failed it guy too. Because he's the guy that messes up the most too. Give me, if you know your Bible well, give me an example of Peter kind of missing the mark. He denied Jesus, right? So good example. Another example. Give me another example. What did Peter mess it up? Jesus talks about the fact that he's the Messiah and that he's going to go to the cross. Peter takes him to the side and says, no, you're not going to do it. What did Jesus call him when he said that? Satan, right? So you have this extreme example of someone who is both really, really, you know, you're like, I want to have a faith like that. I want to be close to Jesus like Peter was. I want to have that kind of strong faith. But he's also the example of someone who messes it up. And the reason that's important is because there is no one better qualified, in my opinion, to talk about what Peter is going to talk about in his letter than Peter because of it. Because he's the person who messes up and gets it right a lot. And what he's doing is that he is writing uh, to Christians who are living in what we now know is Turkey. So the geographical area that we now know is Turkey, he's writing there. It wasn't called Turkey then. It was part of the Roman Empire. And I know that because if you read what it says, he says those who are elect exiles. And in verse 2, he talks about the idea that they, are, they were chosen by God. So he's talking about Christians. He's talking about Christians here. And we know that Peter wrote this letter while he was in the city of Rome. How do I know that? Because if you look at chapter 5, verse 13, it says this, She who is, in, who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends your greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Okay, so that's a little bit weird. What is he talking about there? What's Babylon? Anyone remember? Babylon is an ancient country known in what story? Daniel, yeah. So it's a little bit of weird that he's saying, hey, do you remember she who's at Babylon? There's someone in Babylon who gives you your greetings, and you're like, wait a minute, Peter can't time travel. What's he talking about here? Well, remember what I told you about Babylon, is Babylon was known, became such an evil force in the Bible that it is used to refer to uh, um, evil and demonic times. And so what it's, what it's doing here is Babylon's a metaphor for Rome. That he is in Rome here. He's talking about he was in Rome, sends the greetings. Now, the reason that I'm telling you that is because, not, not to give you a bunch of knowledge, but it kind of sets up the book of First Peter. It sets up a very important part of the story. Because Bible scholars tell us that we think that Peter arrived in the city of Rome to encourage the church in Rome Anywhere between the years 62 A.D. and 65 A.D. That's sort of where we think this book is written. We don't have a specific year, but it's in that window. And that's, that should scare every single Christian in this room. If I said to you that you shouldn't be in New York, on the 11th day of the ninth month of the year 20, uh, 2001, what am I referring to? 
In July 18th of, of 64 AD, that was a bad year to be a Christian. Which would have been somewhere in this window of when 1 Peter was written. Why? Because of, what happened, because of two things. Number one, a guy named Nero rises to power. Nero succeeds the next Caesar. And if you know your history well, you know that Nero is not a very nice man. In fact, nobody likes him. No Roman liked him. No Jew liked him. No Catholic, well, no Christian liked him. Nobody really liked him. If you were an atheist, you didn't like him. But if you believed in Jesus, you especially didn't like him. Because what happened was in the year, uh, in July 16, uh, or July 18th of 64 AD, a massive, massive fire broke out in the city of Rome. And it destroyed a very, 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 very big chunk of the city. We're not sure how much, but it was very, uh, it was very devastating. Just to give you an idea, um, I believe that if you were to calculate it out, uh, Calgary sits at 1 million uh, 1.2 million people. At this time, we think that there was about a million or so people living in Rome. And the city of Calgary is just a slightly big bit bigger than the city of Rome. So the reason that I'm bringing that out to you is imagine that there is a fire that sweeps through and destroys a whole chunk of Calgary. Imagine like the, the news and how big of a story that would be. And that's sort of the kind of level that you have here in Rome. A massive fire breaks out and destroys uh, a huge chunk of Rome. And what starts happening is a lot of people actually blame uh, Caesar Nero for it. That he was, there were rumors going around that while the city was burning, he was playing his harp. And he deliberately set the fire to make sure to make room for his palace. And no matter how hard he tried to, uh, you know, shift the blame, he couldn't do it. And so what we learn from history is there's a man named Tassius who writes this historical account. He's living just a little bit after these events. And here's what he said about this. He said, no, by no human effort or nor lavish gifts of the emperor or placations of the gods turned away the suspicion of those who believed that the fire was ordered. Therefore, so that the rumor would be abolished, Nero falsely ascribed criminal blame and applied the most extraordinary punishments onto who? Christians. And this is very, very, very important because in history, right up until what is going on right now is if there's persecution against Christians, it's done regionally and it's kind of done uh, at, a, at a local or cultural level. But here what winds up happening is, is that there is a fire and Nero is looking for a scapegoat and so he blames Christians and what winds up happening is a great wave of persecution, unlike you have ever seen before, actually starts right here against Christians. And First Peter, what I, what I want to bring in is Peter is writing this letter around this time. It's not that First Peter is writing specifically about that event, 
But these are, these are kind of setting the stage. This is the background that is happening in the city that leading up to, uh, or uh, that is happening while he's in the city. So it's either this. He's either writing First Peter leading up to this, or he's right on the heels of it. Or we're not really sure. But the climate, the point I'm getting at is that the climate for Christians is not very nice for Christians if you were living in Rome. You know that saying, safe and fun for the whole family? You know, you, know, you go to Shine FM, safe and fun for the whole family. Rome was not safe and fun for the whole family if you were a Christian. So the question then rises, the reason I bring this out is because how could Nero blame Christians so Well, the reason is, is because in the years leading up to the fire, Christians did not have a good reputation among Rome. Romans in general were very, and I'm, I'm going to quote very, I'm going to quote prim, primary historical sources on this said that they were very suspicious of Christians because Christians pulled away from communal life of Romans. In particular, they stopped going to the temples. So what would wind up happening, and that's very, very important because here's what would wind up happening. You were a Roman, you were doing your business, you were a non-Christian, and someone would introduce you to Jesus and you would accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you would worship him and him alone. And what that would mean is that you would stop worshiping the other gods. And that was a big kind of red flag for Roman citizens. This, be, this, this was, uh, <clears throat> you see, in Rome, I don't know if you know this, but Rome was a very pluralistic society in terms of religion. As far as religion goes, you could have the right to worship any god that you chose, any religion that you wanted, as long as you worshipped the Roman gods too. Individuals had right to worship whatever religion, as long as those rights did not supersede the state. So you can believe as much in Jesus as you wanted to, as long as you won't honor the Roman gods. Christians wouldn't do that. And because they wouldn't do that, they were viewed as um, unpatriotic. I don't know if you know this or not, but they would in that day. There's no there's no separation of church and state. And if you were a Roman citizen, yeah, and you were like, this is the greatest country in the world. In that culture, you would attribute the greatness of Rome to the gods of Rome blessing you. And so, what would happen is, if you did not honor the gods, it would be the equivalent of being unpatriotic. There was a lot of political. Uh, politics tied to religion of that day <clears throat> and so if you didn't act it was a the Roman gods it was considered a political act and that actually was very 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 hard Christians uh, Christians were <clears throat> um, Romans also knew that Christians were skilled tradespeople that we know of the Christians at this day and in those days trades guilds met, were met and held their meetings at the temple. So you know here in Manor, we get together and we do coffee with anyone in the area uh, for the first Friday of every month. It's sort of the same idea, except they would meet in these pagan temples. And they would do worship 
they would worship and offer sacrifices as a part of their trade meetings. Well, Christians stopped going. Um, on top of that, what you need to know is that um, the, the religious celebration, um, celebrating these religious gods was also a very social thing. A lot of extended family gatherings, a lot of like what we would equivalent to as Christmas parties, whatever the equivalent of that would be in Rome, they were held at the temples and you would sacrifice at the temples. So, so religion became, uh, going to the temples became a social thing too. Your family would gather to go worship Zeus for a bit, then, during the, then you would go off and see Athena, and then you would kind of go to these different kind of temples to honor the gods as a family. And so what wound up happening is Christians pulled away from all of that. And what wound up happening is Christians now have formed these small communities where they're not participating in normal life. And rumors began floating around about what these Christians were doing in secret. What are they doing in secret? And why can't they do what they're doing in public? And so there began to become a very big misunderstanding, mistrust of Christians. And we know historically that Christians, uh, the uh, Christians' actions became misunderstood. So in particular, four of them I, wanna, I just want to read to you uh, that we know of historically of the, the Romans thought of Christians is you might be surprised to know that Christians were the first to be called atheists. Now that sounds weird to us. But the reason that they were called atheists was that they claimed that the Roman gods weren't real gods at all. So when people heard that, and later in Roman persecution, when Christians are thrown to the lions, you will have accounts of saying the crowds chanting away with the atheists. It was also considered that Christians were anarchists, that they were subversive to the state, because they did not honor the gods, your gods kind of functioned like a, like a mascot of the city. So every city would have a particular god that they would worship. And that uh, would kind of function as, as not only your religious kind of spiritual uh, uh, portion of your life, but your god was also responsible for the blessing and the greatness of your city. So if you didn't honor the gods, you were kind of seen as someone who didn't really honor Rome. And so the rumor began to say that Christians were going to overthrow the Roman Empire. In Jude chapter, and then what starts happening too is we have accounts of Romans saying, telling lies about communion. In Jude chapter 1 verse 12, we know that early Christians uh, referred to communion as a love feast. Well, Romans who were not Christians looked at that and thought that was really weird. And they started spreading rumors that communion was some sort of physical revelry done on an account never seen by the Roman Empire. They were weird people. Or a rumor started spreading that communion was cannibalism because we know we talk about uh, the bread and juice representing the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Somewhere along the line, they thought that that meant that Christians ate the meat and drank the blood of their own children. So 
I want you to picture yourself living in that time, and you have a friend that you're just wanting to share Jesus with. You're like, man, my friend, they need to know Jesus. And that friend of you thinks that you're an atheist, an anarchist, and that you are a cannibal. What's his opinion of Christian? Of a Christian? Any any diggers? Well, in short, all this led to Romans thinking that Christians hated humanity. I'm reading from uh, Tassius, which is a historian. He lives 50 years after this fire I told about. And I want you to see what he says about Christians and how Christians were viewed in that culture. He says this. He actually starts talking about Jesus at first. He says, The Eponius founder of this group was a certain Christus, that's Jesus, who was during the reign of Tiberius inflicted with punishment by a prosecutor, Pontius Pilate. This destructive, what does it say? Superstition, held, held in check for a while, erupted again, not only in Judea, what does it say? The origin of this evil. But through the city of Rome itself, where all frightful and shameful things came together and were celebrated. That's a reference to everything that I just mentioned. Okay. So first they were arrested. So first they were arrested who confessed. Then when they turned informant, when they turned on other Christians and told, told each other who the other Christians were, an erroneous throng was found guilty. Not necessarily for the crime of arson, but what does it say? As for the hatred of the human race. Simply put, there was a general feeling that Christians hated the human race. They were being misunderstood. Okay. And because of that misunderstanding, they were also mistreated. They suffered a great amount of persecution. Uh, it, says, uh, it says this. Uh, they, they became, or where did I write this down? Oh yeah, here it is. They, felt, they faced social ostracism. They faced unfriendly acts by their neighbors. This is all cultural, by the way. It's not top-down yet uh, by the government. There's, they, uh, there was pressure on Christian wives from their pagan husbands. So Christian wives would not submit to their husbands because their husbands demanded that they worship the Roman gods, and Christian wives would not do that. Non-Christian masters began beating their Christian slaves and when this happened, and when the fire happened, this is, this is the height of it. This is what was happened. This is what we know happened. Mockery was piled on those who were dying as they were covered with animal hides and died from the mangling of dogs. Or they were nailed up to crosses and set on fire, and they were used as light, night lamps when the day ended. Nero offered up his own gardens for the spectacle and set up certain games, mingling with the common people in the chariots, outfits, and moving around the racetrack. From this, even in response to deserved criminals, and the latest, latest warning examples, a certain pity arose, insofar as it was not the, for the public good, but for the one's per, person's savagery that they were being consumed. So what he's saying is this. After the fire broke out, 
what Nero did is he would take Christians, he would round them up, and he would wrap them in meat and then set dogs on them. Or he would light them on fire and use them as lampstands while he played circus games. It's a pretty brutal time to be a Christian, safe and fun for the whole family, right? <laughs> no, not so much. And so the reason that I'm bringing all this is because this is sort of the culture, this is sort of the window that we know of that First Peter is being written in. Okay? And what winds up happening is because they were mistreated, they scattered. They became misplaced. Anytime that they had this massive persecution, they, they ran. They didn't, want to hide. they didn't want to be a part of it. And so what we learn here is that when Peter writes the letter, he says this, to those who are elect exiles, so they get scattered, of the dispersion. So they dispersed all over. They became drifters. They became misplaced. Do you know what a drifter is? A drifter is a person who is continually moving from place to place without any fixed home or job. And so Peter, this is sort of the window that we know of that Peter, the, the book of First Peter is being written. And we, we don't know for sure if it's being written specifically about that great purge, but in order for the Christians to be persecuted on that level, it's a very hostile time to be a Christian. Christians were misunderstood. Because they were misunderstood, they were mistreated. And because they were mistreated, they scattered. They were misplaced. They became drifters. And Peter knows all that. And so what he starts doing is he starts writing a letter to a very specific group of Christians. He, knew, he knows who are suffering. Maybe not on to this level, but you know this... But they are, they are suffering in some way. And he's actually writing to encourage them. It says, uh, it says in verse 12, I write this letter to you so that you may be encouraged. And he starts writing this massive letter. And he's going to say things to these Christians who are suffering like, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of this life. And he's going to write... In 5 verse 12, I'm going to put this in the NLT to, just to make it easier for you to understand. My purpose in writing to you is to encourage you and assure you, assure you that what you are experiencing is truly part of God's grace to you. Stand firm in it. So he's writing to these Christians that are suffering, and he's writing, he's like, i got to encourage them, and I have to encourage them to stand strong in the midst of it. And so what he does is he starts writing things to the, these, church, these Christians that are suffering, and he starts saying things like, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He'll say stuff like, After you suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, and strengthen you and establish you. He's going to say stuff like, In this you rejoice, though now you have in a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, that is more precious than gold, that perishes through, though, though it is tested by fire, might be found to be the result of praise and glory and honor and the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know what it's like saying? It's like saying that Peter knows that suffering 
and trials and whatever happens to you is like walking through a fire. And then you know what? And you're like this piece of metal. Then what winds up happening is when you walk through that fire, suffering either melts you or it makes you. It either destroys you or it refines you into something else. And that is actually what I would say that Peter's goal is in the book of 1 Peter. Is that he wrote the letter to make sure that believers stand firm and strong and steadfast in the face of trials. That he's saying, hey, you know, because what's going to happen is the suffering is going to get intense. It's going to get big. And when your suffering happens on a certain level, there's a certain amount of pain, there's a certain amount of suffering that we all go through, that at some point we just go, is it worth it enough? And Peter is writing to say to them, I need you to stand firm in the midst of it. I need you to stay steadfast in the midst of it. So that's what the book is about. Now, lastly, why are we studying it? And I'll end with this. I believe that Peter's words in chapter 1, verse 1, are true not just of them, but are true of all Christians in all time. What does it say? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. I want to make clear that I think what Scripture is saying is that you are called to be a drifter, an exile. There will be times in your life where you will suffer. Everyone, Christian or not, will suffer. But in particular, as a Christian, you will make decisions directly because you love Jesus that will have an adverse effect on your life. You will pay the price. You cannot be a Christian and not walk through a trial. It's like saying that water's not wet. You will face trials of some kind directly because you love Jesus. And when Peter's saying that they're exiles, he's describing something that I think that is true of all Christians of all time when he says that they were sojourners. And he's saying that as you and I follow Jesus, that we don't truly belong. You and I don't fit in. We don't quite connect. Some of you know what that feels like. You've left your home country to come here. Maybe you've, uh, you're, you're adjusting to culture and it's just, it, there's just something that's just a little bit, you just don't, doesn't feel like home. It's not connecting. Being a follower of Jesus changes something. And I feel like why this happens is that at some point in your life you probably felt this friction about being a follower of Jesus but having that kind of tension in the world that you and I live. You want to know why that happens? The reason that happens is because when Jesus came, he declared a new, a new kingdom, a new country. He said that the kingdom of God is here. And when we step into relationship with God, we be, we be, we're still physically a part of this kingdom, but we are a part of Jesus' kingdom. We are called to be with a new king, a new country with new values, with different values from the ones of this world, with a different worldview from, from this world. But we still live here, and sometimes, as we live here, there tends to be some friction. 
And people will challenge you and they will misunderstand you and they will mistreat you because they misunderstand you. Like you, And it's going to feel like you're not quite home. You're not quite here. You don't quite belong. And so what I would say is that you and I too will be misunderstood. Are there situations and stereotypes that non-Christians think or beliefs that we have that we don't? Yes or no? What's something that people believe us, accuse us of believing that we don't really believe? Not to go to church to be a Christian. Right, not to go to church to be a Christian. How about this? Because we believe that God created the world, we don't believe in science. That's ridiculous, by the way. Right? Or how about this? Because we believe that marriage is between men and women, we are what? Those are things that people will misunderstand about us. And as they misunderstand us, they will sometimes cause friction. And they will rise in suffering and persecution. We too will feel like we are moving, and it will make us feel like we are continually moving from place to place without any fixed home because of the suffering. We don't feel like we quite fully fit in here. And I would wonder you today that the reason that we are studying in 1 Peter is I just want you to understand this, is that I think that the reason you and I should study 1 Peter is to make you resilient in the face of suffering. We are a privileged people, I believe, as Christians living in Canada. A number of us remember a time when you could say the Lord's Prayer in public school. Anyone around that era, right? Yeah. You remember a time when our politicians, whenever some natural disaster uh, would uh, would occur in the country, they wouldn't cite any other god. They would cite the god of the Bible and say, "Pray to this god." What do they do now? We're sending out thoughts and prayers and good vibes. So just ah, I hate that. Don't ever good vibe me. It's not very good. I don't have to make the argument that the culture is changing. And I think what it requires is that you and I, as the culture changes, I think what's going to happen is something similar to what happened to the first century Christians will happen to us in some regard. We'll suffer because of our faith. We'll be misunderstood and we won't feel quite like we belong. But that's okay. You know, the other day... uh, I was, uh, I'll just finish up and wrap here. Uh, the other day, uh, we were getting ready for the Christmas children's presentation that Cammy did. You guys remember that? And uh, I was set out to get the candy bags. And I asked Cammy, how many, how many candy bags should I get for the kids? And she said, well, I think there are 38, 38 kids in the production. And I went, wow, that's quite a lot. So I got the candy bags, and after I thought about it, and I said, that, that number doesn't really include all the teenagers who are too cool to do the Christmas play, or, any, or the kids that didn't participate. So I, I thought to myself, you know, the number of kids in our church that are under 18 years old is probably somewhere closer to 50. 
give or take, am I right? Which means that a significant portion of our church is under 18. And I think that's really cool. I think we should be praising God for that. That's an encouragement. That's awesome. But I also say that as a parent, I think that that makes your job just a little bit harder because what that means is that as a church and as a parent, you have to understand that your kid's faith uh, when they grow up as an adult is going to look, the world that they grow up in as an adult is going to look very different from the world that you grew up as an adult. And I think that there are things that if your kid's, continue in the faith as adults, I think there are things that are going to happen to your kids where they will be antagonized for their faith in some way, in some form, and they're going to feel that sense of drifting worse than you and I do, and they're going to wonder whether or not following Jesus is worth it, is worth that not feeling like they belong, is not worth attention. And so what I think that our goal as parents should be is, among many, we should work on making sure that our kids' faith is resilient. That when there are times of antagonism, that they can stand up and stay fast and steady in the midst of it. Peter's goal is to turn you from those little wimpy guy in the face of suffering into that guy face of suffering. What I mean by that is your life, you could feel like your whole life is falling apart. You could feel like you're on fire. You could feel like your clothes are torn. You could feel like you're poor, that you have scars all over your body and wounds all over your body. Like, still standing strong for Jesus. First Peter is a book on how to suffer well as a Christian. How to be resilient in the face of Christian uh, suffering. So whether it's overt persecution, obvious persecution that we saw in Nero's case, or subtle pressures, Christians have always faced trials in this world. And our culture is no exception. And the book of 1 Peter offers us encouragement in the face of that suffering by reminding us that our identity is chosen sojourners, drifters, and commending us to do good in the face of suffering. That's how we stay, that's how we stay resilient. So I'm excited for that, and uh, I, I don't know what you're going to face. You might not be in a space of your life where you're facing any sort of trial, but I'm going to tell you that at some point, trials will come your way. Pressure will come. And the trials will either melt you or make you. And if you allow God's word to speak in your life, they are going to refine you and make you resilient. So I hope this is an encouraging series to you. And uh, I hope that kind of sets up the, the book of First Peter for you. All right? Let's close with one more song. Well, we've, we've just come through the season of Christmas and I like Joe's sign it says Merry Christ Mass and how many of us have been however you want to call it inundated or subtly had a little Christmas card or a Christmas